Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. I wanted you to know that because it's our 25th anniversary and because this coincides with the London Olympics, we wanted to strike this year uh, three medals in the Olympic spirit for poetry, prose and drama. And I wanted you to know that the prose medal was given to someone who is not only a great novelist, but a great short story writer, a great essayist, a great journalist, a woman whose mastery and encouragement and liberation of the internet was right at the forefront of spreading the word about literature, who has written a novel, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, which will be read in 500 years' time in any format that you choose, and whose ability to craft language delivered from the mouth to an audience is absolutely unrivaled. I give you our medal winner for prose, Jeanette Winterson. show you my medal because <laughs> it's good they just said to me before you go on for your event you've got to come to this reception I thought oh no I want to concentrate they said, no you have to come so I went in it was full of pot plants it was nice and Oxfam things and then they were banging on about these medals and I wasn't really taking any notice I thought what shall I say when I go on stage you know in the way that you do and then suddenly it was me so I'll show it to you here we are rather nice. I think you'll be able to see it if we zoom it up. You see, there it is. It's good, isn't it? I'm very pleased to have it. <laughs> it is really nice to win things occasionally. You know, I mean, none of us is above any of that. Um, and especially when it's a surprise, and especially here at Hay, which is 25 years old. Um, and indeed only a little younger than Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, which was published in 1985. So I feel as though the whole trajectory of, of my own work, my own career, if, if a writer can possibly have a career, I don't think so, has really belonged with and followed Hay. We've been in the same place, and I've known Peter Florence uh, since we were both youths. Um, and here we are, we're still doing this on the stage in the way that we always did. But thank you very much for coming. Thank you for coming to this event, when there are loads of others that you could have gone to, so I'm very touched by that as well. And it's just fantastic because we're in the gospel tent. <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> and what I want before I begin is, if you could just with a show of hands, can, how many people here have never read anything by Jeanette Winterson? It's marvellous. All of you who've put your hands up today, you know that you've come to this tent because there's something missing. There's been a lack, hasn't there? There's been something that you couldn't quite find. No matter where you looked. It wasn't in love and it wasn't in work and you've gone around with this hollow space inside you. And then you were drawn by some mysterious force to this tent tonight. And part of putting up your hand is just the beginning. 
And when, when you leave here for the modest price of $6.99, <laughs> you'll be able to buy your first Jeanette Winterson book, and nothing will be the same again. So it's very brave of you to come and raise your hands. And everybody else here will be in support of you. That's right, isn't it? Because they've all been in that situation too. They know what it's like to have that lack in your life and then suddenly to find what it is that you were wanting. So thank you especially to you. And when you go out, I'll be praying for you. My favourite chorus when I was growing up was cheer up ye saints of God. Which I love the idea of the saints of God being told to cheer up, don't you? And Mrs Winterson's, as you will discover, was God has blotted them out. Oh yes. I'll be starting from the beginning of the book in a minute, but... Because we're here and it's here and we're talking about books and reading and the life of the mind and all those important things that don't have any place in the, in, in, in the busy outside world with its measurements of GDP and global economy and recession and depression, all the things that we can't talk about in those places we can talk about here. And I wanted to just begin with something that had happened to me when I was 16 and I was leaving home and books became a raft and a lifeline. I was 16 and my mother was about to throw me out of the house forever for breaking a very big rule, even bigger than reading forbidden books. And that rule was not just no sex, but definitely no sex with your own sex. I was scared and unhappy. And I remember going down to the library to collect the murder mysteries. One of the books that my mother had ordered was called Murder in the Cathedral by T.S. Eliot. <laughs> and she assumed it was a gory story about nasty monks. And she liked anything that was bad for the Pope. <laughs> the book looked a bit short to me, because mysteries are usually quite long. So I had a look and I saw that it was written in verse. Definitely not right. I'd never heard of T.S. Eliot, and I thought he might be related to George Eliot. But the librarian told me he was an American poet who'd lived in England for most of his life. He died in 1964, and he won the Nobel Prize. I wasn't reading poetry because my aim was to work my way through English literature in prose, A to Z. But this was different. I read, This is one moment... But know that another shall pierce you with a sudden, painful joy. And I started to cry. Readers looked up reproachfully, and the librarian reprimanded me, because in those days, you weren't even allowed to sneeze in a library, let alone weep. So I took the book outside, and I read it all the way through, sitting on the steps in the usual northern gale. And that unfamiliar and beautiful play made things bearable that day. And the things it made bearable were another failed family. The first one wasn't my fault, but all adopted children blame themselves. And the second failure was definitely my fault. I was confused about sex and sexuality. And I was upset about the straightforward, practical problems of where to live, what to eat, and how to do my A-levels. I had nobody to help me, but T.S. Eliot helped me. And so when people say 
that poetry is a luxury or an option or for the educated middle classes or that it shouldn't be read at school because it's irrelevant or any of the strange and stupid things that are said about poetry and its place in our lives, I suspect that the people doing the saying have had things pretty easy. A tough life needs a tough language. And that's what poetry is. And that's what literature offers, a language powerful enough to say how it is. It isn't a hiding place, it's a finding place. So we'll start at the beginning, as stories do. Chapter one, the wrong crib. When my mother was angry with me, which was often, she said, the devil led us to the wrong crib. The image of Satan taking time off from the Cold War and McCarthyism to visit Manchester, 1960. <laughs> Purpose of visit, to deceive Mrs. Winterson. <laughs> Has a flamboyant theatricality to it. My mother was a flamboyant depressive. A woman who kept a revolver in the duster drawer and the bullets in a tin of pledge. A woman who stayed up all night baking cakes to avoid sleeping in the same bed as my father. A woman with a prolapse, a thyroid condition, an enlarged heart, an ulcerated leg that never healed, and two sets of false teeth. Matt, for every day, and a pearl eye set for best. <laughs> See, that gentleman's jealous. You speak to your dentist. I don't know why she didn't, couldn't have children. I know that she adopted me because she wanted a friend. She had none. And because I was like a flare sent out into the world, a way of saying that she was here, a kind of X marks the spot. She hated being a nobody. And like all children, adopted or not, I have had to live out some of her unlived life. We do that for our parents. We don't really have any choice. She was alive when my first novel, Oranges Are Not The Only Fruit, was published in 1985. And it is semi-autobiographical in that it tells the story of a young girl adopted by Pentecostal parents. And the girl is supposed to grow up and be a missionary. Instead, she falls in love with a woman. Disaster. The girl leaves home, gets herself to Oxford University, returns home to find her mother has built a broadcast radio and is beaming out the gospel to the heathen. And the mother has a handle. She's called Kindly Light. <laughs> and the novel begins, like most people, I lived for a long time with my mother and my father. My father liked to watch the wrestling my mother liked to wrestle. For most of my life, I've been a bare-knuckle fighter. The one who wins is the one who hits the hardest. I was beaten as a child, and I learned early never to cry. 
If I was locked out overnight, I sat on the doorstep till the milkman came, drank both pints, left the empty bottles to enrage my mother and walked to school. We always walked. We had no car and no bus money. And for me, the average was five miles a day, two miles for the round trip to school and three miles for the round trip to church. And church was every night except Thursdays. I wrote about some of these things in Oranges, and when it was published, my mother sent me a furious note in her immaculate copper plate handwriting, demanding a phone call. We hadn't seen each other for several years. I'd left Oxford and was scraping together a life, and I'd written Oranges Young, I was 25, when it was published. I went to a phone box. I had no phone. She went to a phone box. She had no phone. I dialed the Accrington code and number as instructed, and there she was. Who needs Skype? <laughs> I could see her through her voice, her form solidifying in front of me as she talked. She was a big woman, tallish, and weighing around 20 stone, surgical stockings, flat sandals, a crimpling dress, and a nylon headscarf. She would have done her face powder, keep yourself nice, but not her lipstick, fast and loose. She filled the phone box. She was out of scale, larger than life. She was like a fairy story where size is approximate and unstable. She loomed up. She expanded. Only later, much later, too late, did I understand how small she was to herself, the baby nobody picked up, the uncarried child still inside her. But that day, she was borne up on the shoulders of her own outrage, and she said, it's the first time I've had to order a book in a false name. <laughs> I tried to explain what I had hoped to do. I am an ambitious writer, and I don't see the point of being anything. No, not anything at all, if you have no ambition for it. 1985 wasn't the day of the memoir, and in any case, I wasn't writing one. I was trying to get away from the received idea that women always write about experience, the compass of what we know, while men write wide and bold, the big canvas, the experiment with form. And Henry James misunderstood Jane Austen when she said that she wrote on four inches of ivory, the tiny observant minutiae. And much the same was said of Emily Dickinson and Virginia Woolf. And those things made me angry. And in any case, why could there not be experience and experiment? Why could there not be the observed and the imagined? Why should a woman be limited by anything or anybody? Why should a woman not be ambitious for literature, ambitious for herself? Mrs. Winterson was having none of it. She knew full well that writers were sex-crazed bohemians who broke the rules and didn't go out to work. And books have been forbidden in our house. And so, for me to have written one, and had it published, and had it win a prize, and be standing in a phone box giving her a lecture on literature, a polemic on feminism, beep, 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 the pips, more money in the slot. And I'm thinking, as her voice goes in and out like the sea, why aren't you proud of me? The pips more money in the slot, and I'm locked out, and I'm sitting on the doorstep again. It's really cold, and I've got a newspaper under my bum, and I'm huddled in my duffel coat.
a woman comes by. I know her. She gives me a bag of chips. She knows what my mother's like. Inside our house, the light is on, and Dad's on the night shift, so she can go to bed, but she won't sleep. She'll read the Bible all night, and when Dad comes home, he'll let me in, and he'll say nothing, and she'll say nothing. And we'll act like it's normal to leave your kid outside all night, and normal never to sleep with your husband, and normal to have two sets of false teeth and a revolver in the duster drawer. We're still on the phone in our phone boxes, and she tells me that my success is from the devil, keeper of the wrong crib. She confronts me with the fact that I've used my own name in the novel. If it's a story, why is the main character called Jeanette? Why? I can't remember a time when I wasn't setting my story against hers. It was my survival from the very beginning. Adopted children are self-invented because we have to be. There's an absence, a void, a question mark at the very beginning of our lives. A crucial part of our story is gone and violently, like a bomb in the womb. The baby explodes into an unknown world, only knowable through some kind of a story. And of course, that's how we all live. It's the narrative of our lives. But adoption drops you into the story after it's started. It's like reading a book with the first few pages missing. It's like arriving after curtain up. And the feeling that something is missing never, ever leaves you. And it can't, and it shouldn't, because something is missing. And that isn't of its nature negative. The missing part, the missing past, can be an opening and not a void. It can be an entry as well as an exit. It is the fossil record, the imprint of another life. And although you can never have that life, your fingers trace the space where it might have been and your fingers learn a kind of braille. There are markings here, raised like welts. Read them, read the hurt, rewrite them, rewrite the hurt. It's why I am a writer. I don't say decided to be or became. It was not an act of will or even a conscious choice. To avoid the narrow mesh of Mrs. Winterson's story, I had to be able to tell my own. Part fact, part fiction, is what life is, and it's always a cover story. I wrote my way out. She said, but it's not true. Truth, and this from a woman who interpreted the flash dash of mice activity in the kitchen as ectoplasm. There was a terraced house in Accrington, in Lancashire, and we called those houses two up, two down, two rooms downstairs, two rooms upstairs, and three of us lived together in that house for 16 years. I told my version, faithful and invented, accurate and misremembered, shuffled in time. I told myself as a hero like any shipwreck story, and it was a shipwreck and me thrown on the coastline of humankind and finding it not altogether human and rarely kind. 
And I suppose that the saddest thing for me, thinking about the cover version that is oranges, is that I wrote a story I could live with. The other one was too painful. I could not survive it. I am often asked in a tick box kind of a way what is true and what is not true in oranges. Did I work in a funeral parlour? Did I drive an ice cream van? Did we have a gospel tent? Yeah, we did. Did Mrs. Winterson build her own CB radio? Did she really stun tomcats with a catapult? I can't answer these questions. I can say that there is a character in Oranges called Testifying Elsie who looks after the little Jeanette and acts as a soft wall against the hurtling force of mother. I wrote her in because I couldn't bear to leave her out. I wrote her in because I really wished it had been that way. When you are a solitary child, you find an imaginary friend. There was no Elsie. And there was no one like Elsie. Things were much lonelier than that. I spent most of my school years sitting on the railings outside the school gates in the breaks. I was not a popular or a likeable child, too spiky, too angry, too intense, too odd. And the church going didn't encourage school friends. And school situations always pick out the misfit, although embroidering the summer is ended and we are not yet saved on my gym bag <laughs> made me easy to spot. <laughs> Adoption is outside. You act out what it feels like to be the one who doesn't belong. And you act it out by trying to do to others what has been done to you. It's impossible to believe that anyone loves you for yourself. I never believed that my parents loved me. I tried to love them, but it didn't work. And it's taken me a long time to learn how to love, both the giving and the receiving. I've written about love obsessively, forensically, and I know it, knew it, as the highest value. I loved God, of course, in the early days, and God loved me, and that was something. And I loved animals and nature and poetry, but people were the problem. How do you love? another person? How do you trust another person to love you? I had no idea. I thought that love was loss. Why is the measure of love loss? That's the opening line of a novel of mine written on the body. I was stalking love, trapping love, losing love, longing for love. Mrs. Winterson objected to what I had put into oranges, but it seemed to me that what I had left out was the story's silent twin. There are so many things that we can't say because they are too painful, and we hope that the things we can say will soothe the rest or appease it in some way. Stories are compensatory. The world is unfair, unjust, unknowable, out of control. When we tell a story, we exercise control, but in such a way as to leave a gap, an opening. It's a version, but never the final one. And perhaps we hope that the silences will be heard by somebody else, and the story can continue, can be retold. When we write, we offer the silence as much as the story. Words are the part of silence that can be spoken.
I believe in fiction and in the power of stories because that way we speak in tongues. We're not silenced. All of us here, when in deep trauma, we find that we hesitate and we stammer. There are long pauses in our speech. The thing is stuck and we get our language back through the language of others. We can turn to the poem. We can open the book. Somebody's been there for us and deep dived the words. I needed words because unhappy families are conspiracies of silence and the one who breaks the silence is never forgiven. He or she has to learn to forgive him or herself. God is forgiveness, or so that particular story goes, but in our house, God was Old Testament and there was no forgiveness without a great deal of sacrifice. Mrs. Winterson was unhappy and we had to be unhappy with her. She was waiting for the apocalypse. Her favourite song was God Has Blotted Them Out, which was meant to be about sins, but really was about anyone who'd ever annoyed her, which was everybody. <laughs> she just didn't like anyone. And she didn't like life. Life was a burden to be carried as far as the grave and then dumped. Life was a veil of tears. Life was a pre-death experience. <laughs> it's good that, isn't it? I thought of that myself. <laughs> Every day, Mrs. Winterson prayed, Lord, let me die. And this was hard on me and my dad. Her own mother had been a genteel woman who'd married a seductive thug, given him her money and watched him womanise it away. For a while, when I was about three until I was about five, we had to live with my granddad so that Mrs Winterson could nurse her own mother, who was dying of throat cancer. And although Mrs W was deeply religious, she believed in spirits. And it made her very angry that Grandad's new girlfriend, as well as being an ageing barmaid with dyed blonde hair, was a medium who held seances in our very own front room. After the seances, my mother complained that the house was full of men in uniform from the war. And when I went into the kitchen to get at the corned beef sandwiches, I was told not to eat until the dead had gone. And this could take several hours, which is hard when you are four. I took to wandering up and down the street asking for food and Mrs. Winterson came after me and that was the first time I heard the dark story of the devil and the wrong crib. In the crib next to me had been a little boy called Paul and he was my ghostly brother because his sainted self was always invoked when I was naughty. Paul would never have dropped his new doll into the pond. We didn't go near the surreal possibilities of Paul having been given a doll in the first place. <laughs> Paul would not have filled his poodle pyjama case with tomatoes so that he could perform a stomach operation with blood-like squish. <laughs> Paul would not have hidden Grandad's gas mask. For some reason, Grandad still had his wartime gas mask and I loved it. Paul would not have turned up at a nice birthday party to which he had not been invited wearing Grandad's gas mask. <laughs> if they had taken Paul instead of me, it would have been different, better. I was supposed to be a pal, like she had been to her mother. And then her mother died, 
and she shut herself up in her grief, and I shut myself up in the larder, because I had learned how to use the little key that opens the tins of corned beef. <laughs> Stop there for a moment. I'm going to tell you how the book Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal came to get its marvellous title. Mrs. Winterson, like all Shakespearean villains, has the best lines. And when I was leaving home at 16 in the passage that we heard at the beginning, and I didn't know what I was going to do, I'd fallen in love with another girl. This had already happened, and we'd had a big exorcism to cast out the demons, because naturally enough, they assumed that if you, if you could possibly be found kissing a girl, you had a demon inside you. So after the exorcism and that not working, it all went wrong again. So the second time round, she called me back and she said, Jeanette, it's up to you. Either you'll have to leave home or you will have to give up that girl. What would you do? Exactly. So I was leaving home and she called me back and she said, Jeanette, will you just tell me why you're doing this? Because she always thought everything was personally directed at her. And I said, I don't know, it, it makes me happy. And there was a long pause and I thought, she'll hear me this time, we won't be on different sides of the glass wall where we've always been. And she said, Jeanette, why be happy when you could be normal? <laughs> she was a violent philosopher. But to leave home with that statement, that question, was something that I had to work with probably for the next 35 years, wondering even if it was a, tr a true question, happy, normal, normal, happy. And if you were normal, would you be unhappy? And if you were happy, could you ever be normal? Um, and it's taken me a long time to realise that the premise was entirely false. So if there's anybody here struggling with that same question, um, I can maybe help you get a bit further along, um, because it's not a true question. But she was a difficult, um, flamboyant, operatic, damaged, inspiring woman. And I wouldn't be standing here today if it wasn't for her. But she died in 1990, and my father didn't die until 2008. And he and I were reconciled because he got married again to a woman who wasn't religious. And he had a very happy 15 years, you know, going gambling. And <laughs> and <laughs> to the Southport Flower Show. <laughs> <laughs> things that he was never allowed to do when he was with Mrs. Winterson, who just every Friday took his money off him and gave him enough back for two packets of polo mints. And that was Dad's life. Um, my father couldn't really read. He left school at 12. He was, he was on the docks in Liverpool by the time he was 14. And then he was in the war. He was in the D-Day landings. Um, and because he was the lowest of the low, they didn't give them any bullets. And he told me that he, he killed six men that day with his bayonet. And you don't really recover from something like that and then try and live a normal life. But he and Mrs. Winterson married in 1947. They paid £200 for their first house in Water Street in Accrington. They'd saved up for it. And that was the year when the snow was so high that it was as high as the upright piano as they pushed it down the hall. And they lived there um, until she died. And that's where I lived too. But there was a reconciliation. But when I was looking through my father's things, I found some ancient bits of paper 
Um, you know, anything that's on a typewriter now looks like it was before the ark, even if it was only 50 years ago. And these bits of paper were to do with my adoption, and I'd never seen them before. And it was clear to me that I had another name, violently crossed out, um, and that the name of the, the adoption society had been ripped off the bottom, and that somebody had savaged that paperwork. I was never meant to know any further. But... I presume it was Mrs. Winterson, just couldn't quite bring herself to throw it all away, although she'd never told me about it. And she'd invented so many mothers for me, mad mothers, bad mothers, drunk mothers, drugged mothers, exploding mothers, <laughs> dead mothers. So I had no idea what I would be looking for. And the second part of why I'd be happy is really the detective search um, to see if I can find the biological mother, or biomar, as I call her. But... And although it doesn't have a happy ending in Hollywood terms, it does have a very positive ending, full of hope, I think. Because you will know from your own reading, and I can assure you that it is so, that there are only three endings to any story um, in all the world, apart from the happy ending. And those endings are revenge, tragedy, and forgiveness. And revenge and tragedy usually go side by side and hand in hand, and they ruin the future. And the only possibility is forgiveness. That is the only thing that allows the text to go forward from the last page, that allows us to go forward from the last word into another possibility. So as we're in a gospel tent this afternoon, I think I can say that if there's anybody here who needs to do any forgiving or indeed needs to be forgiven, today's the day for it. We'll all be dead soon enough. Appropriately enough, Mrs. Winterson, now chapter 8, The Apocalypse. Mrs. Winterson was not a welcoming woman. If anybody knocked at the door, she ran down the lobby and shoved the poker through the letterbox. <laughs> I'll just leave you to reflect a moment on where the poker would come out. And that you mustn't try that at home. You don't go back and say, oh, I wonder what it was like putting that poker through that letterbox. You go on the outside and I'll do it. No. Part of the problem was that we had no bathroom, and she was ashamed of this. And not many people did have bathrooms, but I was not allowed to have friends from school in case they wanted to use the toilet. And then they would have to go outside, and then they would discover that we had no bathroom. In fact, that was the least of it. A bigger challenge for unbelievers than a drafty encounter with an outside loo was what was waiting for them when they got there. We were not allowed books, but we lived in a world of print. And Mrs. Winterson wrote out exhortations and stuck them all over the house. And under my coat peg, there was a sign that said, Think of God, not the dog. <laughs> and over the gas oven, on a loaf wrapper, she'd written, Man shall not live by bread alone. But in the outside loo, directly in front of you, as you went through the door, there was a placard. And those who stood up read, linger not at the Lord's business. <laughs> and those who sat down read, he shall melt thy bowels like wax. That's from the book of Deuteronomy, in case you were wondering where to look it up, so that you can do it yourself when you do get home. This was wishful thinking. My mother was having trouble with her bowels. 
It was something to do with the loaf of white slice that we couldn't live by. When I went to school, my mother put quotes from the scriptures into my hockey boots. And at mealtimes, there was a little scroll from the promise box by each of our plates. A promise box is a box with Bible texts rolled up in it, like the jokes that you get in Christmas crackers, but serious. And the little rolls stand on end, and you close your eyes and you pick one out. And it can be comforting. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Or it can be frightening. The sins of the father shall be visited on the children. But cheery or depressing, it was all reading, and reading was what I wanted to do. Fed words and shod with them, words became clues. Piece by piece, I knew they would lead me somewhere else. The only time that Mrs. Winterson liked to answer the door was when she knew that the Mormons were coming round. And then she waited in the lobby, and before they'd drop the knocker, she'd flung open the door, waving her Bible at them and warning them of eternal damnation. And this was confusing for the Mormons, because they thought they were in charge of eternal damnation. <laughs> but Mrs. Winterson was a better candidate for the job. Now and again, if she was in a sociable frame of mind and there was a knock at the door, she left the poker alone and she sent me out the back to run up the alley and peer around the corner down the street to see who was there. I ran back with the news and then she'd decide whether or not they could come in. But by now, discouraged by no response, the visitor would be halfway down the street. So I had to run and fetch them back and then my mother would pretend to be surprised and pleased. I didn't care. It gave me a chance to go upstairs and read a forbidden book. I think Mrs. Winterson had been well read at one time, because when I was about seven, she read Jane Eyre to me. And this was deemed suitable, because it has a minister in it, St. John Rivers, who's keen on missionary work. Mrs. Winterson read out loud, turning the pages, and there's the terrible fire at Thornfield Hall, and Mr. Rochester goes blind. But in the version that Mrs. Winterson read, Jane doesn't bother about her now sightless paramour. She marries St. John Rivers. <laughs> and they go off together to work in the mission field. It was only when I finally read Jane Eyre for myself that I found out what my mother had done. And she did it so well turning the pages and inventing the text extempore in the style of Charlotte Bronte. <laughs> the book disappeared as I got older. Perhaps she didn't want me to read it for myself. I assumed that she hid books the way that she hid everything, including her heart. But our house was small and I searched it. Were we endlessly ransacking the house, the two of us, looking for evidence of each other? I think we were. She, because I was fatally unknown to her, and she was afraid of me. Me, because I had no idea what was missing, but felt the missingness of the missing. We circled each other, wary, abandoned, full of longing. We came close, but not close enough and then we pushed each other away forever. I did find a book, but I wish I hadn't. It was hidden in the tall boy under a pile of flannels, 
and it was a 1956 manual called How to Please Your Husband. This terrifying tome might have explained why Mrs. Winterson didn't have children. It had black and white diagrams and lists and tips, and most of the positions looked like adverts for a children's game of physical torment called Twister. As I pondered the horrors of heterosexuality, I'll read that again. As I pondered the horrors of heterosexuality, I realised that I need not feel sorry for either of my parents. My mother hadn't read it, well, perhaps she'd opened it once and realised the extent of the task and put it away. <laughs> the book was flat, pristine, intact. So whatever my father had had to do without, and I really don't think they ever had sex, he hadn't had to spend his nights with Mrs W, one hand on his penis and the other holding the manual while she followed the instructions. <laughs> I remember her telling me that soon after they were married, my father had come home dead drunk and she'd locked him out of the bedroom. He'd broken down the door and she'd thrown her wedding ring out of the window and into the gutter. He went out to find it and she got on the night bus to the next town. And this was offered as an illustration of how Jesus improves a marriage. The only sex education that my mother ever gave me was the injunction, never let a boy touch you down there. <laughs> I have no idea where she meant. I, I, um, she seemed to be pointing to my knees. Would it have been better, do you think, if I'd fallen for a boy? instead of a girl? Mm, probably not. I had entered her own fearful place, the terror of the body, the irresolution of her marriage, her own mother's humiliation at her father's coarseness and womanizing. Sex disgusted her, and now, when she saw me, she saw sex. It's so good, isn't it good? <laughs> this is really great. My cat's going to love this. Also, my girlfriend sees your back. She could learn hypnotherapy, couldn't she? You have a whole new relationship with this medal. There's, there's going to be a, few, a little bit of time for questions. I've got a big flashing thing here. It's like I'm going to explode because it says time remaining in big letters. Um, can you see it or not? Oh, no, you can't, no. And it's, it's got a countdown. It's going 1404, 1402. Um, so I know what we've got, although you don't. Um, I don't know if there's any artists here tonight, any visual artists, but... Um, one of the things that you'll find if you, if you do pay 6 99 for this excellent value book 
is Mrs. Winterson's uh, approach to the visual arts. Because, of course, she'd read Exodus, which says that you can't have any graven images. Because um, you know, so the Jews were, didn't really think that you should have graven images. Well, God didn't either. Um, so no graven images. But we have been left six watercolours by a dead uncle. And, of course, Mrs. Winterson also wanted to have some familial piety. So she thought, what can she do? She thought she couldn't hang them on the wall, but she couldn't give them to Oxfam either. So what she did was she decided she would hang them on the wall, but back to front. <laughs> so that's what I saw when I was growing up. I saw brown paper and string and little steel tacks and damp patches where the canvas had seeped through. And I think this gave me a real feel, you know, for contemporary art. <laughs> Because if she'd taken that lot and, and exhibited it, she'd have won a prize, wouldn't she? She'd have got a bigger medal than me. Have we got any questions? Oh, yes, lots. See, this is your chance, remember, because I'll go and then you'll be cross and you'll say, we should have asked her. Um, there's a lady there looking eager. And I'll repeat the question if you can't hear it. Aren't we lucky to be here? Isn't it great? Um... I loved the book, by the way. I thought it was wonderful. She loves the book. You see, a testimonial <laughs> from a reader. <laughs> I didn't pay her. I've been converted for a while now. But, um, I was just wondering whether you thought Mrs. Winston would have approved of this book a bit more with it being a bit more truthful than Orange's. Would Mrs. Winterson have approved of this book any more than she approved of Orange's? I don't think that she would. I mean, I'd like to think that by now she'd be a different Mrs. Winston because she did die in 1990, which was actually in episode two of Oranges on the Telly. Um, you know, because Oranges, I made it with, with uh, my friend B. Ben Kidron, the film director. And Mrs. Winston managed to die um, soon after episode two, which is the sex scene. And you think, how did she manage that? I mean, you know, of all, I mean, I hope that I can go out with that kind of somatic control. Um, so, I'm not sure, because she was, I, you know, it's, it's a lesson to us all, isn't it? It's like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I, you know, I, was, I was the miracle, I was the golden ticket that could have got her out of where she was. She hated her life, and she, she was like one of those genies in the bottle, and every so often she'd come out and she'd go up to her usual 300 feet, and then she'd go back into this small crouched space, depressed under the shelf of her life. Um, she was far too big for her life. And the only person who could have taken her out of it was me, um, which is sometimes a, a reminder that the thing we want is actually standing right next to us, or indeed it might even be us ourselves, that it's not somewhere else. It's here, and it's now, and we've got it. So who knows? But I was able to forgive her when I wrote Why Be Happy, and I like to think somewhere that she was able to forgive me. Yes, yeah, stand up's a good Congratulations, idea. Congratulations uh, on your well-earned, well-earned medal. Um, I loved oranges, and so much so, um, 25 years later, um, um, our book club, um, I decided to tell them to, to, to read it. And See? we ha had a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic discussion, but the one thing that we had so many different interpretations on was the title, Oranges, and I just really wanted to hear today from you um, why oranges? Can you remember why you did something 27 years ago? 
it's a really terrible thing to because if you if you're a writer, you live in a kind of continuous perpetual present. And people say, oh, you know when you said that? And you're thinking, no. <laughs> because so much life happened in between. Um, Mrs. Winston wasn't, she was obsessed. I mean, she wasn't obsessive, of course she was. Um, and we did have various sequences of fruit in our house and nothing else. We had bananas and then it went to oranges. Um, so there was, it was that. But there's a quote in the beginning of oranges that says, oranges are not the only fruit, it's from Nell Gwynn. And then it also says that it's from Mrs. Beaton. None of this is true. Um, it might be to do with Orlando the Marmalade Cat, which is the first book I read for myself when I was a little girl. So who knows? How do writers get their ideas? I, I can't help you with that one, but it's a good title, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. We'll go to the back in a minute. If you want to say something at the back, if you would stand up, that would be easier for me. 8.51 remaining. Where are we? Otherwise, I'll have to sing Cheer Up, You Saints of God. Right, we got you there. Uh, you work very hard at forgiveness. Is that to do with religion, or is that to do with something completely different? Forgiveness. Forgiveness is really hard work, and revenge and tragedy um, are a lot easier, and you don't even have to think about it. You just do it, don't you? You just shoot somebody, um, or just make their lives a misery or your own. And somehow we can do that quite well, can't we? I'm not sure why. Um, why it is so difficult, uh, why we need so much energy, both to love and to forgive. You know, the things that, that really matter um, seem to cost us everything, but perhaps that, that's how it's meant to be. Yes, I mean, it's taken me 50-odd years to get to this point. And when I read to you that there was that line in, written on the body, why is the measure of love loss? I've been doing lots of tours all around the world, and it's really nice because young kids come up to me and they love that book. Um, lots of people have got married through it or from it or had it at their civil partnerships or their weddings. It's really nice. And I've had to say to them, I've had to say, look, I don't believe that first line anymore, which is interesting. I no longer believe um, that the measure of love is loss. And that's a huge change. See, the love that you get early on in life, it, you tend to assume that that is what love is and that those qualities are intrinsic to it. So if the love you get is unreliable and slightly frightening, um, reckless and makes you a little bit seasick, you think somehow that that is to do with love and you'll go on looking for that same experience and offering it too. Um, which is what I did. And it's taken me all this time to realize that love could be as reliable as the sun that you could have the daily rising of love. That do? I'll now sing Cheer Up, You Saints of God. Cheer up, you saints of God, there's nothing to worry about, nothing to make you feel afraid, nothing to make you doubt. Remember, Jesus never fails, so why not trust him and shout? You'll be sorry you worried at all tomorrow morning. <laughs> It's good, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lot better than God has blotted them out. You, you have to imagine Mrs. Winston at the piano, you know, singing, God has blotted them out. Large woman, large piano. New question, 617, over here. Uh, hi, Jeanette. Hello. Uh, absolutely brilliant book. I loved it. It was fantastic. The trouble is you're all in the same room. Nobody's going to believe that I haven't planned it. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I, I rather sadly knew the words um, to, that, to, to that hymn as well. Uh. <laughs> Evangelical in Manchester. We could all sing, couldn't we? What should we sing? <laughs> uh, 
Um, what, what I wanted to ask you was, um, you were an only child, and did you ever find out from Mrs. Winterson, or more likely from your father, whether they thought about adopting another child so you wouldn't have been so isolated? I don't think they'd have been allowed to adopt another child. I mean, <laughs> it's astonishing, isn't it, that they, they were allowed to adopt any child at all. I mean, when I think about it, um, I did see a little bit of the, the paperwork. Um, I wasn't allowed to see much of it. It's very interesting. Even though the Winstons are both dead, the file is closed. Um, you read about it in here. It's a, it's a real search. If you were adopted, um, prior to 1976. It was done on the basis of closed records um, and it's very difficult to get at the paperwork but there is a bit of paperwork where Mrs. Winston is writing complaining letters in, in her copper plate handwriting um, about the whole situation. Um, one, one thing that they have to do is whitewash the outside toilet. This seems to be um, the only thing that matters. If you whitewash the outside toilet you can, we'll give you a baby. <laughs> You know, it was just one of the things they had to do. So my dad went out there and whitewashed the toilet. And I took it over as I grew up. You know, I think she thought that if they stopped whitewashing the toilet, you know, I'd have to go back or something. Um, but no, but there is a, they, did, they were going to get a boy. They were going to get Paul. And I think one of the funniest bits in here is when, you know, I assume that I'm a free woman who's made her own sexual choices and that I'm a feminist and that, you know, I'm self-directed. Um, and then I discover that, indeed, they were expecting Paul. And Mrs. Winston writes a note saying, but we've already bought the baby clothes and we won't be able to afford another set. <laughs> so I began life, not as Jeanette, not as Janet, but as Paul, because she'll have put me in the baby clothes, won't she? Yes. And uh, my girlfriend Susie says that well, you know, mothers do everything differently with boy babies and girl babies, and that they still do, or you still do, you'll all know, because sure lots of you are mothers. Um, so there's this sort of delicious irony, really, that for all the trouble caused, it was really Mrs. Winston's fault. Um, <laughs> because she was cross-dressing me from six, <laughs> six months old. <laughs> she never told me that. Um, hang on, we'll go at the back and then we'll go down there, 319. Run, run. We'll do this one while you... Yeah, go on. Um, I, I haven't read the book yet, but I'm very much looking forward to... Are you going to buy it? Uh, yeah, yes, definitely. <laughs> um, I don't I just, get paid to come, you know. <laughs> um, I was just going to ask, um, what about your decision to call your adoptive mother, Mrs. Winterson in the, in the book, and, you know, yeah. whether it's a, a purely literary decision or whether it's what you feel you call her, you know, just generally when you think about her? I don't think it's a, it was a literary decision, no. I mean, it suits her being called Mrs. Winterson. And also, you know, mother is a word with particular connotations. And Mrs. Winterson really doesn't match the word. Um, I wanted to also give her, give you a sense of her dimensionality and her larger-than-lifeness. Also, you know, her aloofness, her eccentricities. And... It seemed right to call her that. I mean, she comes out of the book rather well, I think. I think you'd be rather fond of her by the end. Um, maybe I've rewritten her. I don't know. I mean, she's in Sex in the Cherry as the dog woman. But above all, she is here. And it is, in the end, a book about the overwhelming presence of one mother, Mrs. Winterson, and the overwhelming absence of another mother um, by Omar. And my realisation, which was very difficult for 
my biological mother, that if I could choose, I wouldn't change the way I was brought up for all its craziness and you know, for all the hymn singing and the madness and being locked in the coal hole and locked outside and having to sleep in a mini when I left home. Um, good job I'm not very tall. All of that, I would keep it the way it was because whatever else happened, it stuffed my head full of stories and it forced me to write my own. Um, so it is my identity. We're up at the back there. Where's that? Where, who's it? Yeah, yeah, up at the back. Hi. Hi. Where are my, you? Uh, my question was a bit related to that. Being in a similar situation of being adopted, having, in a sense, two mothers, for me, when I found that out, the question of who is mother, what is a mother, mm. was very difficult for me. I found it very hard to even use the word um, for either mother. And I wonder whether you felt at all the same. No, I don't feel like that. I mean, there is a point. I never wanted to look for my biological parents because I thought, look, one set of bonkers parents is enough. <laughs> you know, I mean, two sets would mean I needed therapy, right? <laughs> uh, I probably do need therapy. But, um, so I didn't want to go there at all. And it was only the paperwork and a sort of cataclysm in the self. Lots of things came together. Sometimes you do get that. You get a constellation of events which force you back into an interior place you didn't expect to go. And that's what happened to me. I mean, there's the story of the breakdown in here, which is um, quite scary. And it was, the, it was the scariest time of my life. It was a complete and utter mental collapse. So much so, you know, trains used to come and I, I would be on the station platform and I couldn't get on them. I'd have to go home um, utterly humiliated because um, I wouldn't tell anybody what was happening because I'm proud. And I thought, if it's going to kill me, I'll do it in my own way. Um, I don't want anybody feeling sorry for me. Um, I, I suppose that's from Wintersome World, isn't it? And of course it changed, I wasn't stuck there. And one of the things that I did was to use poetry to help me get through. If anybody here is going through any difficulties, if you try reciting a poem in front of the mirror, either learn it or just read it from the book, but watch your face and you'll see the anxiety and the fear and the horror begin to drain away as the strong, sane voice of the poem cuts through all those crazy voices that go on in your head. It's the most extraordinary piece of therapy, and it does work. And that's what I used to do when I was, re I was really losing it. Um, but it was all involved in that search. And that's why, at the end of it all, I thought, I should write this down, because it won't just be my journey. It'll be a bigger journey, because where do we meet? We meet on the steps of a story. Um, and it's, the, it's those stories that we share, the narratives of our lives, that make us feel connected and not disconnected, um, and give us a sense um, that we belong in a bigger community, not on these isolated rafts of time, which is such a fearful place to be. I guess that's why we're here now, because it's both a private and an intimate experience where I'm speaking to you one-to-one -one, and you've got your own thoughts in your own head and no one can go in there. And yet we're also in this collective space um, where we want to be together in the gospel tent. <laughs> it's saying now, end of session. It's flashing now. It's... In the 12 seconds remaining, you're not going to let me. When you go to your next session, here's a, here's a little bit of, of Yates, which is great. He says, When such as I cast out remorse,
So great a sweetness flows into the breast that we must dance and we must sing, for we are blessed by everything and everything we look upon is blessed. Thank you. Goodbye.